We turn our attention now to the Word of God, and I'll get you to take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 7. That's where we'll find ourselves this morning, Matthew chapter 7. Uh, it is the summer holidays, and because so many are away, I, I don't want to continue with the book of Hebrews uh, that we have been going through. I always like to, whatever book we're going through, to make sure all of us are here and we're all going through it together. And since many uh, are, as I said, still away, we'll take a break from that. Uh, and resume that in a couple weeks. And so it does allow me to preach on some other things that uh, I think we need to hear, um, and, and, and particularly this morning uh, and next week as well. I, I think what we are going to discuss this morning, uh, in one sense you could call the secret to living the Christian life. The Secret to Christian Life. I know the title on your bulletin has The Beggar's Logic, and that's the title I've come up with this morning. But there's also, uh, you could title it The Secret to Living the Christian Life, which I think has hopefully awakened everybody to want to hear what that is. Um, And in fact, let's just read it together. It comes in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 12. Let me read it again for us. Matthew 7, verse 7, ask, Jesus says, and it will be given to you, seek, and you will find, knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks and receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you whom his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask him? Therefore, in everything, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. So here is Jesus, as you can see, you can see everything above these verses and following these verses and you look to the other page. It's all in red, right? And it's all in red because here we are smack dab in the middle of what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. I think most of you are familiar with that. The Sermon on the Mount begins all the way back in chapter 5, verse 1, and then it goes all the way to chapter 7, uh, verse 27. So this is uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And so when you come to these verses, one of the questions is, well, how do you divide them? Uh, do, you, do you take just one verse at a time? Do you take a couple at a time? Uh, I, I am actually going to take these verses all together. And I, I believe they are to be taken all together. Most people would maybe take verses 7 to 8 as one unit, and you see the word there, ask, and they would say, well, this is a, a verse on prayer. We could talk about prayer, and that would make sense. When you follow verse 6, which is a whole discussion of praying for discernment, so coming into verse 7, you say, well, I, well, I better ask for discernment. You go to verse 11, you then being evil, well, we can have a whole sermon on that. We can talk about the doctrine of man, the nature of man being evil. And on the flip side of that, we could talk about Jesus' nature because he says you being evil. He doesn't say us being evil. So we could talk about his nature. We could also talk about the goodness of God. You who being evil, and then he flips it around and says God being good, right? He says your father who is in heaven gives what is good. So we could talk about the goodness of God. And then you come down to verse 12. This is the so-called you know, golden rule, very practical instructions on how to live with each other. So, so we could divide up these verses into a number of particular issues, and they all are worthy of our individual attention. But I, I do think to divide them all up into those particular issues really, uh, as they say, misses um, the forest for the trees, right? You've heard that before. Uh, we, we can walk through the trees and look at the trees, but we need to kind of stand back and maybe even go up and look down and see that what we're approaching is a forest. And they're all taken together. We want to take these verses, verses 7, together. And and I say that because I believe Jesus actually is drawing these individual subjects together really just to make one point. Believe it or not, in those verses, and I'm going to obviously show you, there's, there's one point, one overall vitally important point that he is making. 
In fact, what I'll say is up front, Jesus is saying here, perhaps, what he's saying here is perhaps the most important things he has said thus far in the Sermon on the Mount. If you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, and certainly as we come up to these verses here in verse 7 of chapter 7, he has said a lot. But what he has said right here at this particular point, I will go on record as saying it's probably the most important point important thing he has said thus far. Now, if you're not familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, let me just quickly remind you, the Sermon on the Mount is, um, is Jesus' sermon laying down what it really means to live as a Christian. Uh, he's not saying this is how you are to uh, be a Christian. The assumption is that you are already a Christian and this is how you are to live. The assumption is that you are already in the kingdom and this is, this, this is what kingdom life looks like. This is the manifesto rather, of the Messiah. Does that make sense? So, in, in a sense, if you get verses 7 to 12, let me say this, if you get verses 7 to 12, then you really get the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, you get the Christian life. If you truly understand verses 7 to 12, you get the Sermon on the Mount and you get the Christian life. Or to say it another way, if you truly understand verses 7 to 12, then you will understand how to live the so-called blessed life, the so-called victorious life, the so-called happy life, the so-called peaceful life, the so-called content life. All of those things the Christian is promised when he lives in obedience. All of those things I think we're all of us want. You want the peaceful life? Absolutely. You want the content life? Absolutely. You want the blessed, happy life? Absolutely. Well, if you understand verses 7 to 12, uh, then you're on your way to getting there. Now, of course, that doesn't mean all your problems and difficulties will go away, but you will know how to live the Christian life and know how to live in, in, in the blessings of God. Let me say that again. Not that all your problems and difficulties will go away, but you will know how to live the Christian life and know how to live it in the blessings of God. And you say, Todd, um, I've never heard that before about these verses. Well, just so you know, the significance of them has been noted by others. Let me just read you Martin Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, I cannot imagine a better, more cheering or a more comforting statement with which to face all the uncertainties and hazards of our life in this world of time than that has been contained in these verses 7 to 12. End quote. That sounds promising. James Boyce, James Montgomery Boyce says this, I believe that these verses contain the explanation of the weakness and irrelevance of much Christian living and much contemporary Christianity. Every now and then a minister is asked by some Christian, why is it that I cannot seem to find victory in the Christian life? Why does the Bible seem difficult to understand? Why do I still seem in bondage to some besetting sin? Why am I such a poor witness? Why do the high principles of Christian conduct have such little effect on my job and on the affairs of my family? Herein, Boyce says, lies the answer. End quote. Now, to get there, to get you to fully understand the importance of these verses and to get Jesus' one main point here, I, I, I want to take you on a bit of a walk. Will you walk with me? I, I just don't want to dump on you immediately what Jesus is saying. I, I want to walk, I want you to walk with me on how you get there. In, in other words, I, I want this to be, for this morning and next week, be a bit of a Bible study. I want you to see the importance of that, of what Jesus is saying here. And in order to do that, we've got to discuss the context. We've got to discuss some of the language. We've got to discuss some of the cross-referencing. But if you do walk with me, I think you will see what I mean by this is perhaps the secret to living the Christian life. Let me put it another way. If you are unhappy... Anxious, discontent, unkind, judgmental, undiscerning, or you just look at your life and it's pretty powerless, these are the verses for you. Okay? So again, let's let's take a walk together. 
And probably, and most likely, it'll walk right into next Lord's Day as well. But where do I begin? As I said, I want to take verses 7 to 12 together as a unit. Um, We could break it up, but we're not. Uh, But how do I know that we're supposed to take this together? What, What is the giveaway? Well, I'll tell you what the giveaway is. Go down to verse 12. What's the first word of verse 12? Therefore. Everybody see that? Therefore. Therefore is what we would call a summarizing word, right? In other words, it's summarizing everything that was before it. It's summing up the previous thoughts uh, or thought. Um, and so that immediately tells us that at least, at least these verses, verses 7 to 12, are to be taken together as a unit. And if that's the case, the obvious question as we roll into verse 12 is what? What's the therefore, therefore, right? That's what we always say when we see a therefore. What's the therefore, therefore? In other words, does it go back just to verse 11? I mean, does it go back to verse 11? What's verse 11? How does treating others as you would want to be treated have anything to do with God giving good gifts? Do we just, do we just go back to verse 11? Or how does treating others as you would want to be treated have anything to do with asking, seeking, and knocking back in verse 7? Again, what's the therefore, therefore? Is it going back to verse 11? Is it going back to verse 7? Maybe we go all the way back up to verse 1. In other words, you know, it says don't judge. If we want to be fair, equitable, even discerning in our judgment towards others, maybe we better not only ask, that is pray, for that discernment, but keep in the forefront of our minds that we want to be treated fairly and equitable as well. I mean, is, is that the argument here? Well, let me suggest that verse 12 is summarizing more than just the previous verses. Um, it goes farther back to... Then chapter 7, verse 1. But then the question is, how far back? Um, here's the clue, how far back you go. Go back down to verse 12. He says, therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them. Why? For this is what? The law and the prophets. Now, if you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, where was another time you saw the, that language, the law and the prophets? Go over to chapter 5, verse 17. Chapter 5, verse 17 says, Do not think I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. In other words, and I'll just jump to the point on this so I don't lose you here. Jesus begins a discussion on the law and the prophets in chapter 5, verse 17. And that tells us that discussion goes all the way to where? Chapter 7, verse 12. He opens up with the law and the prophets and he finishes with the law and the prophets. So the therefore goes all the way back to what? Chapter 5, verse 17. Not just the verse 7, not even the verse 1. It goes all the way back to chapter 5, verse 17. In other words, and this is kind of an ancient writing, ancient speaking kind of thing, where you want to clue your people in where you begin and where you finish, you repeat the words. So Jesus opens up a whole discussion on the law and prophets, and you want to know where he finishes? He'll repeat it again at the end. Does that make sense? Now, come back to verse 7 and 12 then. What's he doing then? Well, he's closing. He's closing a discussion. Jesus is closing his exposition of the law and the prophets, you could say. Everything he has said from chapter 5, verse 17, to this point is his explanation and exhortation of what God actually has already said in the Old Testament. He, he, you could say he's reviving it. He's, uh, he's not reinterpreting it. He's just renewing it. Because, it, you know, the, the scribes and the Pharisees have terribly changed it, misinterpreted it, misunderstood it. So he's restoring it, you could say, in these verses. One of the questions you you would come up with as you move from chapter 5, verse 17, to chapter 7, verse 12, um, and we don't obviously have time to to reread it, but if you're familiar with it, one of the things that you'll pop up every once in a while as you read it is the question, well, who can live like that? Who's sufficient or competent to live like that? 
But I, actually, let me give you some examples. Go back to chapter 5, verse 27. Oh, start with verse 21. What's chapter 5, verse 21 say? You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. What, what's he saying here? Well, what he's saying is that if you have outbursts of unrighteous anger, you, you basically have broken what? The sixth commandment. Right? You, you've broken, you, you haven't physically murdered somebody, but the fact that you rose up with anger, unrighteous anger in your heart, is, is a spiritual murder. How many of us have ever had an outburst of anger? Jesus says if you've done that, you've committed the sixth commandment. And you're left just stopping right there saying, well, well, there I go. I can't live like that. But he doesn't finish there. You go down to verse 27 of chapter 5. He says, whoever looks upon a woman with lust, you've committed what? The seventh commandment. All right, maybe you haven't committed physical adultery with that woman, but you certainly have done it uh, spiritually. Bam, there we go again. We're undone. Go down to verse 31. Uh, Here, here's the question. Who never is tempted to steal? I mean, he's dealing with the Eighth Commandment here in verse 31. Have we stolen? Have we stolen time from an employer where we should be working, but we're, we're... doing whatever else, texting or emailing, downloading things off the Internet that we shouldn't be downloading. That's stealing. I mean, you can see that the law isn't just a, you know, what you do physically. There's a spiritual element to it, and that's what Jesus is bringing out here. From the Sixth Commandment to the Seventh Commandment, even to the Tenth Commandment of coveting, the Eighth Commandment, and then you come down to verse 33, the Ninth Commandment, And then you keep moving. How about the Lord's name? Have you ever taken the Lord's name in vain? That's the third commandment. Go down to verse 38. How many of us seek revenge on those who hurt us? God says you can't do that. Go down to verse 43. How many of us struggle to love our enemies? Uh, How many respond to those who hate us with kindness and goodness just like God? I don't think many of us do. And then, if that's not enough, that's, that's just... Overwhelming enough. Look at verse 48. We're supposed to be what? Perfect. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I mean, so you just jump from verse 21 to verse 48, which is only a portion of the Sermon on the Mount, which begins the whole law and the prophets. The, the fact is, you, you, you look at, what, at the law, you look at what Jesus says, and the, the obvious question is what? I can't live like this. Who can live like this? And that's an okay question. That's an okay question. But by the way, he's not done. Go into chapter 6. Chapter 6, the beginning of chapter 6, deals with hypocrisy. Who who here struggles with hypocrisy? I mean, how many of us are hypocritical in our giving, hypocritical in our praying, hypocritical in our fasting? I mean, he just gives three examples here, but it's really three examples that cover all spiritual services. I think there's... Well, I know... There's hypocrisy in all of us. Maybe some of us are more than others, but we are hypocrites to a point. And yet Jesus says here in verse 4, what? Your father is watching. Verse 6, he sees in secret. What, what is his point here? He knows all about your hypocrisy. He knows your heart. He knows your loyalty. He knows your disloyalty. He, he knows if you are serving him and someone or something else. He knows where exactly where you spend your money and your time. Moreover, now we're coming into verse 25, if God is our Father, well, we certainly want to be content. None of us want to to, to be anxious. But we are anxious a number of times. The fact that Jesus mentions it three times, do not be anxious, do not be anxious, do not be anxious. I mean, how many times does he have to say it? He understands we are anxious people. But, but certainly, I think all of us would want to be content, fully trusting, and at rest with all that God gives and all that God provides. So that's why he deals with the, the subject of anxiety and worrying there. But then, where are we? Come into chapter 7. You come into chapter 7. Who here knows they are often judgmental of others? 
Who here knows that they have a critical spirit in them? Who here knows that they never see the best in others, always thinking the worst, unfairly criticizing others with their own man-made standards? What's Jesus' point here? Well, you, you can't do that. You're not God. Who made you God? Right? So again, I, I, I just skimmed through that, but the, the point that Jesus is making, kind of a rhetorical point as he moves through all of these issues if you're going to live in the Christian life, the response from us, at least from me as I read that, is how do I do that? How do I live without any anxiety? How do I live without any hypocrisy? How do I avoid stealing and lusting and coveting and lying? How do I become perfect? Right? I can only imagine the response of the disciples as he was preaching this. Um, I would think, and I, I hopefully we're similar in this, as I hear it, as we hear it, as the disciples heard, I think there would have been a, an immediate piercing, a conviction, maybe even pain. In other words, there would be a desire to change, a desire to obey. And that's the response I believe Jesus wants. I think the response Jesus wants by the time he gets to the end of chapter 7 is, I hope, I hope you're feeling some pain. I hope the noose around your neck is starting to tighten. Because when you look at the Sermon on the Mount and you look at my manifesto, you'll realize that none of you can keep it in and of yourselves, in and of your own flesh. Nobody can keep this. It's impossible. It's like asking dogs to fly. You, you can't do it. In fact, by the time we get to chapter 7, verse 5, beginning at chapter 5, verse 17, you, you would think that there is perhaps some perspiration going on. Maybe even some desperation going on. In fact, that's probably a good word here. In fact, we should be at the same point we were at the moment we got converted, I think. The moment, the very moment we entered the kingdom of God. And you say, well, what was that like? Do you guys remember that? you guys remember the moment you entered the kingdom of God? you remember the time when you stood before God and you realized that you were a sinner in face of a holy, thrice holy God and you knew that you were damned and doomed? There was some desperation at that time, I think. I hope. I think there was some crying out. For forgiveness, for crying out for a savior. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is when you get to this point, this point in chapter 7, verse 5, or I should say verse 7, when you get to chapter 7, verse 7, having begun in chapter 5, verse 17, you should be at a point of desperation. Now, the reason, by the way, I say you were at a point of desperation when you walked into the kingdom of God is because if you go back to chapter 5, verse 3, remember what Jesus says there, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. That, that's how you were when you entered the kingdom of God. You were poor in spirit. In a word, you were beggars. You were spiritual beggars, and that's what Jesus was saying there. The kingdom of heaven is only for those who are spiritually bankrupt, only those for those who recognize that they have nothing to offer God. We came into the kingdom poor. We came into the kingdom destitute. We came into the, the kingdom desperate. In, in, in other words, this is how you came into the kingdom of God. And the point is when you get through the Sermon on the Mount, this is how you what? Stay in the kingdom of God. Did you catch that? Let me say it this way. Here's Jesus' point. Not only do we enter the kingdom of God as beggars, but we are also to live in the kingdom of God as beggars. Let me say that one more time because I don't think most Christians understand that. Not only do we enter the kingdom of God as beggars, but we are also to live in the kingdom of beggars. Yes, yes you did. If you are a true Christian, a true believer, there was penance, there was sorrow, there was a poverty of spirit. You were the proverbial beggar in the corner of a building. 
putting your hand up, asking God to forgive you. You were that publican crying out, oh Lord, forgive me. Right? Be merciful to me, a sinner. But somewhere along the line, we don't stay there, do we? Pride seeps back in. Right? Your flesh creeps back in. What happened to that beggarly spirit? That's Jesus' point in the Sermon on the Mount. To keep you a beggar. Because if you actually look at what he demands and what he commands, and you realize you can't keep it, you're going to have to come back to that point and say, help me. That's why I say verses 7 to 12 is the the secret to living the Christian life because if you do want to be blessed, if you do want to be happy, you do want to be peaceful, you want to be content, it's right here. This is the solution, as it were. If you want to have victory over your anger, you want to have victory over your lying and your lusting and your stealing, victory over your bitterness and resentment, your hypocrisy, your anxiety, your judgmentalism, whatever it is, wherever you find yourself falling up short, if you want to have victory over all that, this is the solution. What you have here in verses 7 to 12, as I said, is the solution, the balm, the comfort, the relief, the support, the answer, whatever you want to describe it as. Or as Sinclair Ferguson puts it, herein lies the beggar's logic. Which... Which obviously I've taken for the title of the sermon. This is the beggar's logic. If you want to be found faithful, obedient, holy, just, righteous, happy, joyful, content. And I hope that's a rhetorical question. I'm not looking for hands to come up. I hope if you're a true Christian, you're like, yes, I want to be all of those things. Of course, Todd, my desire is to live as a Christian as Christ wants me to live. But the answer, or rather the question is, well, how does that happen? Because my life isn't full of joy. My life isn't full of contentment. How do I get there? Verse 7. Here's, here's what you need to know. Ask, seek, knock. Do you catch that? That's it. Ask, seek, and knock. Now, you were right. As I said at the beginning, these verses are about praying, but it's more than just praying. After all, you, you can't just stop at verse 8. As we said, you've got to go down to verse 11. What's verse 11? Good things. Is that something general? Is that something particular? I mean, is Jesus talking about the general things in life, like, Father, please give me this, and Father, please give me that? I mean, is it all about health and wealth, like some people say? Well, no. The context here indicates that these good things are everything Jesus has been talking about. The good things is everything that he has already been saying. What what is that? All the blessings of the kingdom, all the power to live in the kingdom. In other words, the power to obey, the power to be faithful, the power to be happy, the power to be content, joyful, righteous, and holy. I mean, how does the sermon begin? Nine times, blessed, right? Makarios. The blessed life, the makarios life, the happy life, the content life. That's the Christian life. That's, that's what the Christian life should be. But how do you get there? What are, we, what are we missing? Well, in verses 7 to 12, as I said, he's wrapping it all up. In a word, what we're missing and what we need, what do you think it is? You'd be probably surprised what I'm about to tell you. You're probably not wrong in what you're answering in your head, but but you you put it all together, what we are missing as Christians and what Jesus is getting to in his Sermon on the Mount in in terms of this is what you need if you're going to live this life that I've demanded from you. You need, in a word, power. Do you catch that? You're going to need power. That's, that's exactly what you desperately need and that's what you want, but that's what you have to what? Ask for. You have any power in your life? Probably not. Why not? But you probably haven't asked for it. That's what Jesus is saying here. And, and notice, he's, it's more than just asking for it. You have to, what, seek it and you have to knock for it. 
Ask, seek, knock. By the way, all three words here are in the present tense and are commands. Keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking is the idea here. In fact, they are not necessarily three separate actions. They are just one action with great intensity. Desperation is behind this. Begging is behind this. Listen, if you really, really want to live the blessed kingdom life, you want to receive all that God has promised for you in Christ, then you have a responsibility. And that responsibility is more than just ticking the boxes, waking up every morning, tick, I've done my Bible reading, tick, I've done my prayer, tick, I've gone to church, tick, I came to the Wednesday night home group. All of us do that, but there's still no power. And we're still not content. And there's still no joy. Now, what's missing? What's missing is a particular attitude. It's, it's an attitude of fortitude that's missing, an attitude of determination. It's an attitude of vigor, appeal, insistence. That, that, that's all bound up in that asking, seeking, knocking. Uh, this week I was reading Pilgrim's Progress again. And I was reading that part where uh, hopeful and, and faithful find themselves in Doubting Castle. Remember that? Giant despair captures them. I mean, if you go back a chapter, they, they fell off the main road, off the Bypath Meadow, and giant despair saw them out in the, in the, in the paddock there in Bypath Meadow and captured them and brought them back to Giant Castle. And he, each morning he comes up and just beats them. I think on the second or third day, his wife says, why don't you just tell them to kill themselves? They're not getting out of here. And Christian there is having a, 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 a pity party. Hopeful and Christian. Did I say hopeful and faithful? Hopeful and, and, and Christian. And Christian is having a pity party. And, and so hopeful, why he's called hopeful is giving him some hope. And, and basically he comes alongside a Christian and says, get a hold of yourself, man. Get a hold of yourself. In fact, act like a man. Stop having these pity parties. Stop sulking. Stop being hopeless. Uh, Bunyan actually uses the words, what, what Hopeful did to Christian was stabilize his mind. And stabilizing his mind and, and encouraging him to have some vigor, encouraging him to have some determination. You really want to die in Doubting Castle? Let's get out of here. I don't want to stay here. This is not the life that Christ has promised us. And then you ask, well, how did they get out of Doubting Castle? Well, they remember. It's always remembrance. We always forget. They remembered that they had a key, a key in their pocket, and the key was what? Promise. They took promise, and they unlocked Doubting Castle, and they fled. I think that's where we are. Many of us are. We need to have some hopefuls in our life that says, get a hold of yourself, man. Act like a man. Stop sulking. Get a hold of yourself. I mean, I, I remember reading the Puritans and they would always say, before you start praying, before you start getting a hold of God, get a hold of yourself. I think that's, if you think about it, that's absolutely true. The reason why we don't pray as we should because we, just, we first don't get a hold of ourselves. There's no discipline in us, no determination in us. There's no desperation in us. And what Jesus is saying here is that what you need, if you're going to live the Christian life, in a word, is power. But power comes through, here's another P word, persistence. You need power to persist, and you need persistence in getting power. Speaking of the Puritans, the Puritans called it importunity. You ever heard of that word? Importunity. We don't use that language anymore. Importunity is an old word for persistence. That's what we needed to do. We need to do. Persist. 
We need to persist. We also need the power to persist. Let me read you Martin Lloyd-Jones again, because in his usual way, he's clear and concise. He says this, The importance of this element of persistence cannot be exaggerated. You find it not only in biblical teaching, but also in the lives of all the saints. The most fatal thing in the Christian life is to be content with passing desires. If we really want to be men and women of God, we really want to know him, we want to walk with him and experience those boundless blessings which he has to offer us, we must persist in asking him for them day by day. We have to feel this hunger and thirst after righteousness, and then we shall be filled. And that does not mean that we are filled once and forever. We go on hungry and thirsting. Like the Apostle Paul, leaving the things which are behind, we press toward the mark. That is it. This persistence, this constant desire, asking, seeking, knocking, is what we must do. End quote. Everybody capture that? Capture that? That's good. I don't think we do that. I, 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 everything that he says that we should be doing, I don't think we do. I, 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 maybe I'm speaking for myself. I mean, you think about it. Week after week, we come to church. We listen. We desire to change. We want the blessings of God. We want to be more like Christ. But little change. Right? Maybe a little bit. But not a lot of change. Very little joy. Very little contentment. Very little victory over sin. All those besetting sins you keep falling into. Not having any victory over. Why is that? Have Have you ever asked yourself that? Well, here's the answer. Here's the key. The key to the Christian life is persistence. Persistence. Again, why don't we persist? I mean, we give up too easily. We're like Christian. We we just, we don't think the best. We sulk. We're lazy. We're passive. We're apathetic. And that's because we don't have any power. We need, we need power to persist, right? And the reason we don't persist is because we don't have the power. And the reason we don't have the power is because we don't ask, we don't seek, we don't knock. You have not because you what? Ask not. Again, you wonder why we don't grow, why we, we're moody and we're depressed and we're critical and we're worldly. I, 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 I think... I think it's right here. We have never learned the important spiritual discipline of walking in the power of God and being persistent. And in fact, I, I'm not sure I've heard a whole lot of sermons on this. Maybe we've asked. All right, let's be fair. Maybe we have asked. But the question is, have we ever done what follows that? We've asked, but have we gone on to seek and to knock? Maybe we've never understood that was part of the deal. Maybe we've always told to ask, but hey, hey, where's the message about seeking and knocking? And that's what Jesus is saying here. It's not about taking a bunch of boxes, a bunch of rules, thinking that's all going to happen, spiritually speaking. Or, or maybe you, you come from a church where you've been told, well, you don't really need to do anything. You just let go and let God. You've heard that before? You just let go and let God. That's unbiblical. Remember, Paul says, you discipline yourself for godliness. How many times have I said, if you, if you want to lose weight, if you want to put some muscle on, you've got to go to the gym. It just doesn't happen, right? You just don't roll out of bed one day and say, ha ha, look at me. I mean, you look at most Christians today and most churches today, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. In a word, there's immaturity out there, right? Would you say that most Christians, and giving them the benefit of the doubt that they are Christians, there's immaturity out there. But there's unholiness with them, there's undiscernment, there's worldliness. And that's because there's powerlessness. And with powerlessness, there's uselessness. You want to be useful, you need power and you want power you need to persist 
So I would say this is the cry of the day. The cry of the day is for persistence. That's why I said at the beginning, what Jesus says here is perhaps the most important thing he has said thus far. I mean, here's the key. Here's the key to the victorious and blessed life we all want. Here's the key to powerful living, lawful living, and joyful living. This is, again, the beggar's logic. You got that? What's the beggar's logic? Persistence. The prayer for power. Even John Wesley recognized this, by the way. He said, storm the throne of grace and persist therein, and mercy and power will come down. Storm the throne of grace. Thomas Watson, Puritan, said this. Persistence shows us that it is not an easy thing as men imagine to get to heaven. There are so many precepts to obey, so many promises to believe, so many rocks to avoid, that it is a difficult matter to be saved. Some fancy a fine, easy way to heaven, an idle wish, a death death tear, but the call is to persist and persevere. Indeed, hell will be taken without any effort. The gates of hell will open up their door on their own accord. But if we get to heaven, we must force our way. We must besiege it with sighs and tears and get the scaling ladder of faith to enter. We must not only work, but fight. Yes, a Christian is commanded to zealous service. He must charge through the whole army of his lust, every one which is stronger than Goliath. A Christian has no time to be fallow. I assume that means lazy, the old Puritan word. He must either be praying or watching, either upon the mount or in the valley, on the mount of faith or in the valley of humility. Be sure, no man is made wise by chance and no man is saved by chance. He must know how he came by it, namely, by vigor and determination. End quote. You wonder why the, and we've said this before, but you wonder why the Apostle Paul uses the metaphor for the Christian as a soldier, an athlete, a farmer. What do all three of those have in common? They are not lazy people, especially if you want to win the war, you want to win the game, or you want some crops at the end of the day. So what is Jesus saying here? Well, he's telling us to persist. That's, that's, that's what these verses are saying. Persist, persevere, press on, progress forward. Don't give up. Don't lose heart. Don't be idle. And if you're a Christian, that's your duty and that's your responsibility. I mean, think about it. Think about a bike. I was thinking about it this week. You know, we all have bikes. We all hop on. But if you just hopped on the bike itself, what's going to happen? What do you got to do? you got to pedal, right? Because if you don't pedal, you're going to fall flat on your back. I'm not sure many Christians understand this. I'm not sure most Christians have grasped the seriousness and the relevance of persisting and persevering. And so that's why I said, please take a walk with me, because I really want you to grasp this. We've got to this point. It's taken all the time to get to this point so you, you understand the context of what Jesus is saying here. And so over really next week now, but now I want to give you where we're going. I, I, I want to give you an outline. All of that was introduction, basically. I want to give you an outline of where we're heading. And, and maybe real quick, I can give you at least point one. But here's the outline. We need to talk about perseverance. And so I want to break it down into seven points. So if you're taking notes, first I want to look at the significance of persistence. Then secondly, the subjects of persistence. I mean, persistent what, right? Thirdly, we want to talk about the steps of persistence. How do we persist? If I'm supposed to persist, how do I do that? So we need to have a chat about that. Number four, let's talk about the stimulus of persistence which kind of is back to point one, and that is why. Number five, the secrets of persistence. Persist with what? Number six, the saboteurs of persistence. We need to know the enemy and the things that come against us that kind of deter us from persisting, those hindrances. 
And then finally, number seven, we'll pull it all together and we'll talk about the sum of persistence. That is, what is the end result consequences or the, the evidences uh, that, that we are, in fact, persisting? Now, as I said, we'll talk the bulk of that, if not most of that, next week. So I trust if you're around, please come next week because it's significant. But let me just close with two verses. You're in Matthew, so go over to Matthew chapter 11. And, and this, is, this is really point one, the significance. The, the, the significance of persistence, which in one sense is what we've been saying this whole hour. Jesus says in Matthew 11, verse 12, and you've probably seen this first but really don't understand it, so let me explain it to you. Matthew 11, verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist, this is obviously Jesus speaking, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. Um, You might have something a little bit different, but most of the common translations use the word violent, and that throws everybody off. That sounds like these are bad men. (laughs) <laughs> the violent men. It's not necessarily a bad word in the context here. Um, let me read you. Um, let me read you a couple translations just for the sake of uh, seeing how it is used by others. New Living Translation. And from the time John the Baptist began preaching until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcibly has been forcibly advancing, and violent people are attacking it. Um, I'll just leave it there. What is he saying? What he's saying is that there are those who want to get to heaven and those who want to get to heaven do what? Do it with determination. They do it with vigor. They're storming the gates of heaven because they want to get... That goes back to my quote by Thomas Watson. There's activity. There's deliberation. There's insistence. I was sharing with the prayer group this morning in the Old Testament. And you can do this on your own. Look up the word seek in the Old Testament. All over, from Deuteronomy and a lot through the Psalms, but all across the Old Testament... The bulk of the times where that word is used, it's used in what in Hebrew we call the, the PL stem, which is the causative stem, which, is a, which means that someone causes himself to do something. And so the psalmist says that I cause myself to seek you. I cause myself to, to seek your commands. I cause myself to, to seek your precepts. I seek, I seek, I seek. There's no laziness. There's no apathy. There's no indifference behind the words of the the psalmist and the writers of the Old Testament. And this is the exact same meaning here. Those who are Christians, those who are gods, have an attitude about them where they are persistent. And they know that the persistent demands power. And that power comes from who? Well, let me close with one other verse. I have to close with this. Go over to Luke 11. Luke 11. This is the parallel verse to Matthew 7. In Luke 11, verses 5 to 8. Now, I'm I'm not going to read all of it. But really, actually, you can go down to verse 13, 5 to 13. But just jumping into verse 9. Notice how this is familiar. This is the parallel to Matthew 7. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he is asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give you? Now now watch this. What does he say? 
the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. Do I see that? There it is. Where's the power coming from? What are the good gifts that God will give you if you ask, seek, and knock? He gives you what? The power of the Holy Spirit. And you can't live the Christian life without the power of the Holy Spirit. You can't live the Sermon on the Mount without the power of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that good? So again, you go back to Matthew 7. What are the good gifts that he gives us? He gives you everything that the Spirit of God manifests. Grace, faith, hope, mercy. Therein lies the secret to living the Christian life. It's persisting, but persisting in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's why Jesus closes off his Sermon of the Mount on that. He says, from chapter 5, verse 17, to this point, you look at everything that I've said, and you must live like this. If you call yourself a Christian and you submit to my lordship, this is what the Christian life looks like. But you are never going to be able to live it unless you persist and persist in the power of the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? But there's more things, a lot more things I would like to say about persistence, but we'll leave those for next week. Father, we thank you for a time this morning that we can pretty much understand why we are where we are and what's missing in our lives. We want to be living in the blessings that you are readily wanting to give us. And we want to live in the obedience of the demands and the commands that our Lord Jesus has given us as well. And so we ask that you would give clarity to our minds, clarity to our understanding of these verses, clarity that the Christian life isn't about doing nothing and it just happens or even ticking a lot of boxes and it's supposed to happen. There is, a, there is an asking and a seeking and a knocking. And I think we have been remiss in doing that. So as we come back next Lord's Day, we'll unpack that much more in understanding what that means. But at least, Lord, we've got a head start knowing that that's probably what's missing in our lives. So again, give us understanding, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.